Welcome to the Seahawks 360 podcast, a sports ethos production. I'm your host, Candace Hagens, and as always, it's a pleasure and it's a privilege to talk Hawks with you. The Seahawks won their third game of the season, an important divisional game that put them first place in the NFC West. They won 19-9 to the Arizona Cardinals, and it was a huge day in terms of the defense, and, and really I think it was the team's first true team win where it was things coming together, pass rush coming together, mixing in with the coverage, the offense doing just enough. It wasn't a great day from the offense, but they did enough. They got enough points on the board to be able to get the win. But what was most impressive is just that defense, the defensive dominance, really. And I know it's the Arizona Cardinals, and they've had a mediocre offense all year, to say the least. But they had, they, I mean, they really hadn't been able to take advantage of the team. The, this defense had had terrible games against a Lions team that was missing like three wide receivers and, you know, a backup quarterback and Andy Dalton and still having tough games. So it doesn't really matter uh, the competition as much as it was just the foundation of them starting to build on something. You could tell they made a few different schematic changes and when it came to defense. Uh, they played a, a lot more of the bare fronts, which is something that they used to play quite a bit last year in, in t- terms of that last like six, seven games when they made the real turnaround defensively. And you could tell that the defensive line is just much more comfortable in those fronts. Essentially, their responsibilities was just to guide, just to guard the one gap. Instead of guarding a gap and a half, instead of having to read things before they react, um, they were just able to react and just play ball in a little bit more of a free way, a way that wasn't as mental, in a way that plays to their strengths. And I think that's really what it was. It's just, you know, it's what we've been talking about. Uh, I know I've been saying it, a lot of people have been saying it. The personnel just didn't fit the scheme. And I think it was pretty obvious, especially when it came to that front seven. And so this bare front allows for them to mix in, steal some of the 3-4 principles. It's not back for 3 per se, but that weird two-man front, it, that, that, that's gone. Um, they've gone to something that they know works. So there's a lot of highlights to get into, a lot of things to talk about. Uh, we'll talk about the defense. We'll talk a little about the offense and Geno and where they stand, if there should be any concerns with that or not. And then finally, we'll wrap up and we'll do a little bit of talk about this Russell Wilson situation and where we stand right now. So let's get into it and toss some hawks. All right, so let's get into it. I mentioned that the defensive line had a great def- had a great game, and they did. They had six sacks after having multiple games of having no more than five pressures come from any defensive lineman. They were able to get six sacks in one game. So it was an incredible turnaround because it, it really was dominant. Puna Ford sort of led the charge. I think he had his best game of the season really the best game I've seen for him in a while, including last season, but he had three tackles for loss after not having any, and I mean any, all season long. So that was big. He had a quarterback hit and he had a sack. So he was really dominant. Uh, Brian Monet saw a lot more from him. He came from having 
no quarterback hits, at least having one quarterback hit. He didn't have any sacks, but he did have also a tackle for loss. So that was a big improvement for him. When Coach Carroll was asked about sort of the difference in his defense, he sort of talked about how they allowed Puna to play more on the edge. And like I mentioned, they were able to play just kind of the one-gap technique instead of one-and-a-half-gap techniques that requires for them to potentially, depending on what the defensive player they're matched up against does, or the offensive player, I'm sorry, the offensive player they are matched up against, depending on what they do, they would have to either, you know, slide back over to the, you know, to another side, or they just weren't comfortable reading and reacting that way. That's sort of not how these guys are wired. And that makes sense because, you know, you're looking at a lot of guys who weren't the most physically gifted. I mean, Puna Four was an undrafted free agent, and he's worked his way up. These guys are, are really known for their physicality, um, not their elite ability to read and process and react at a quick speed. So I, I think that this works for now, and I think they should stick to it, honestly. But, you know, long term, I, I would like to see them get some better personnel just because I think it's made clear that these guys aren't going to be for this scheme. They aren't going to be best for the scheme. You can try to scheme around them, but I think it's always going to limit the scheme to some extent. You're never going to get to see it in its full um, ability and versatility because of how limited the players on the defensive front is so but still huge progress from them uh really excited about the pressures that were they were able to get uh they also played really well in the run game so i mean that's really why i'm focusing on this d line because it wasn't just their ability to get pressure their biggest issue which had been run defense by far was a lot better i'll say that it was a lot better uh they played against the backup backup running back getting to start for his first time um Inu Benjamin they held him to 37 yards and I know you could say well that's a backup backup running back you know honestly it hasn't mattered <laughs> and it hasn't mattered even like last year it, when the sometimes they had games where I mean the, there was a Vikings game where uh Mathis Matheson I think is his last name uh he just tore the Seahawks up in the run game. You would have thought Dalvin Cook was in the way he cooked the defense. And so it had been an issue before that just because the backup running back didn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't, that the guy wouldn't have a career game because that's how bad the defense had been. It didn't matter who it was. Anybody was able to run all over the team. But with the scheme changes, um, with the personnel able to play a little bit more within themselves, Played to their strengths a little bit more, I think. It made a difference. Now, Kyler Murray was still able to run for 100, 100 yards. So that part wasn't good. But I'll tell you why I'm not bothered by that. Because I think mobile quarterbacks is always going to be a problem for this defense. I'm not sure that that's something that you see them fix this year. Because when it comes to rushing or rushing, you know, running quarterbacks, the thing is, those things aren't planned, right? They're not plays you draw up. And so I think one of the things this team struggled with, defensively especially, was communication. And it's I think they're getting better at being able to communicate in terms of where everybody's supposed to be, coverages, etc. You can do that when you can see the play kind of drawn up before you. It's a drawn up play. You can say, I sort of seen this on film and communicate according to what you see. Well, for a lot of quarterback runs, 
it's not a matter of a play design a lot of the times. I mean, there are POs, but a lot of times, especially with Kyler Murray in particular, it's just improv, right? And so it takes a combination of a togetherness in order to fix that, you know, communication mid-play, I think, will require that. But also more than anything is them getting to know one another and how to react in certain situations off of each other. You have to play off of one another in those type of improv situations. That's one. This group hasn't worked together nearly long enough to be able to understand how each other reads and reacts in certain situations, what each player is going to do, and then what that will be as a result. That's They're not there yet. I mean, this is only six weeks in. That comes with time. And then on top of that, these are very inexperienced players in general. At least a lot of them are either playing new positions or playing completely different roles, schemes. Nobody's really a comfortable veteran, really, except for Nuosu and Shelby Harris. Not even Quandre Diggs is comfortable in this. I don't even think he's comfortable in this scheme yet. or, Or he's been overcompensating for some of the flaws of others. Maybe a little both. But so that's why you're seeing their ability for mobile quarterbacks to make big plays. I don't know if that'll get fixed, but I'm not really worried about that. If they can stop the running backs, if they can if they can do well in that, they can do well in pass coverage, and you have to force the quarterback to run all the time, so be it. I mean, so be it. Got to take a loss. So they can't run the entire game. And at some point, they got to throw, right? And if you got good pass coverage, which they did in the game against Arizona, then I, I'm not going to worry about it. So speaking of pass coverage, a huge bright spot, again, was Kobe Bryant, who posted his highest PFF grade of the year by far. He posted the third highest grade in PFF defensively. He posted a 79.3, which is his highest by far the season. PFF has been killing him all the way up to this point. And that's just because he really did struggle in coverage. Uh, but he did not this game. He did really well. Uh, he had five tackles this game. He had another forced fumble. Uh, he, had, he was targeted seven times. He only allowed three receptions. And so he had an ultimate rating of 50 NFL Cubic rating allowed of 50, which is huge. That's such an improvement for him. It was his best game by far. He's looking more and more comfortable. He's looking like he's finally getting in the swing of things, even though he's still in that nickel position. I'm still not sure he should be best. Uh, he's best at nickel, but he's finding a way to make it work. He's still continuing to make plays. He's doing everything that you would want the guy to do and more. This is his fourth forced fumble in four games. Everybody talks about Tariq Woolen, and believe me, trust me, I'm going to talk about Tariq Woolen, but nobody's talking about Kobe Bryant's ability to just force fumbles between Kobe's ability to force these fumbles and Tariq's ability to get these interceptions. There is such a strong core of lockdown defense that I think this team is forming. I mean, if they continue on this projection they're going to be one of the best defenses in the league next year. I mean, seriously. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It's possible for them to look as bad as they've looked right now and with the year under their belts to be absolutely dominant. Like, that's not even far-fetched, especially with some of those personnel improvements I talked about over the offseason. 
So it's extremely exciting. I loved that for Kobe Bryant. And then, of course, there is Tariq Woolen. Tariq Woolen, another interception. This one pretty much sealed the game. Uh, he had a fourth quarter interception. Kyle is just trying to go for it, throw a go ball to Marquise Brown. And there Tariq Woolen is, just runs the route perfectly with a beautiful interception. One of the prettiest ones I've ever seen. Richard Sherman-esque, if I may say so myself. And he's just got some of the cleanest hands. You could just you could just see his wide receiver background all over as he ran that route with Marquise Brown. Just exceptional, exceptional play. He also had the he picked up he had the fumble recovery that Kobe Bryant had. Uh, he allowed a passer rating of thirty five point nine, and he started to finally get some recognition. I sort of been frustrated up to this point because nobody had been really talking about. Tariq Woolen and giving this guy his credit when he was doing incredible things. But now I'm starting to see some momentum growing and people paying attention to him. And that's great uh, because I think this this guy's got a real chance at Defensive Rookie of the Year. I think he's got a real chance to be a pro bowler and maybe even second team all pro. We'll see. Uh, maybe. But that's possible. So it's just super exciting to see. He took the step in the first direction. Uh, and because of his performance against the Cardinals, he was awarded the Defensive Player of the Week Award for the NFC, which is huge. Uh, and it just shows how much momentum he's gaining. People are really starting to understand. And I'm going to stop calling him Tariq. I heard this nickname from uh, Brian Baldinger. He's doing one of his breakdowns on Tariq Woolen, and he just starts calling him the shadow. Because he's like the shadow. Nobody's faster on the field than uh, nobody's faster on a football field. Uh, then T- Tariq Woolen's shadow, pretty much. Like, he's like, you can't you can't throw the ball over the shadow. He's a shadow. Nobody's faster on a football field than Tariq's shadow. It's just him and his shadow. And I think the shadow is far better than the Avatar. I'm just putting it out there. I know that was his nickname, but and it's cool. But the shadow is bad, man. It, it That just has a villain type of edge vibe to it, man. So... He is a shadow. He will now, henceforth, from now on, be called the shadow on this show. And if you follow the show on Twitter, you'll be following him. You'll be seeing me call him the shadow as well. I love that name. I like Tariq the Freak as well. But the shadow just has a nice ring to it. Uh, yeah. So, anyway, the shadow doing his th- doing his thing. And so all around, it was a great performance. I really think the defense was the reason why the game was close because the offense kind of struggled. I mean, the defense kind of had to carry the load for the offense this game to some extent. I mean, not to a liability. Offense was able to get points on the board. But it was really the defense making stops, uh, defense holding, you know, holding the, cart- holding the Cardinals, getting them three and outs making plays. That's really what won them the game at the end of the day. One more thing on the defense before I move on and start talking about the offense. It's important to point out that there was one glaring difference from the past few weeks to this week. And that is that Kobe, Cody Barton did not play a lot. He did not play a lot at all. He only played 35% of the snaps, I believe. 35% of the snaps, 
and the rest was in nickel. So they did not a lot of nickel packages, a lot of dime packages, a lot of three safety looks. And look how much better the defense was. Now I don't know if that's sustainable. I don't know. I I think it. I have a feeling it might have been more of a Cardinals thing, but I really think they should consider doing that. I've said it before. But less of Cody Barton is better. He's just not a good starting player. I mean, you can bring him in the rotation, sure, and he won't kill you. But relying on him play after play after play the way they were is not ideal. And teams will take advantages of his weaknesses, especially in the run game. And he sometimes struggles in coverage, too. So he doesn't really have anything to hang his hat on. He's just sort of a placement level at this point. And like I said, it's so obvious that they're that they're putting him in these positions that he's not meant to succeed in. And teams are just, you know, running right at him. You know, if he's on the field, they're running in his direction and he's messing it up. Take him off the field and things start cleaning up just a little bit. So I hope that's something they can continue to build on. You know, it's not anything personal, but it's just, I think the team didn't, the team should not have just relied on Jordan Brooks and, and Cody Barton. I mean, he didn't even really have any competition in the offseason this year. So I blame more them for that. But nevertheless, I'm, I'm happy that they're making the decision that they're making because it's the right one. You can't can't go all, on, all in on Cody Barton. So anyway, that helped some get some real improvements to the defense as well. But let's talk about the offense. Uh, offense only scored nine, 19 points. Uh, Geno did not have as good of a day. He, he took... Quite a few sacks. The O-line really struggled in this one. Uh, Gino being sacked uh, five times in this game. It, it, it was pretty tough. It was a rough one. Real rough one for the offensive line. Now, PFF does not credit them with all five sacks. They only credit them with three. But uh, still, I, it was a tough ask. It, I think it was just them seeing so many blitzes, you know, the Cardinals, you know, I talked about before how I felt confident that Gino would be able to uh, overcome some of the issues that he had, you know, some of the issues that Russell had in terms of reading the blitz. And I thought Gino would be able to overcome that. What I did not consider, and perhaps I should have, <laughs> what I did not consider is the O-line would struggle with how often the Cardinals blitz, you know, protections, Stunts, identifying where the pressure is going to be coming from. I just think there was so much coming at them because I don't even think the Cardinals really, the Cardinals had struggled up to this point to really get a good pass rush. They really did. But because I think it was new, yeah, they, they were able to take advantage of it. It's something that I think if they played the Cardinals again, I think the O line will be better. I think they better understand what mistakes they made maybe how they need to communicate differently than maybe they would against different defenses because the Cardinals are so relentless with it. They are like the Lions in a way, but they're just so persistent about it. The Lions did it often, but they did it in certain spots in probably predictable spots, to be honest, which makes them uh, less effective. But the Cardinals, it was relentless to some extent. And so Gino was able to catch some of them. You know, I was right. He, he was able to, you know, get them into some good plays, get them out of some plays. You could tell he recognized some of those blitzes. Some other couple times where he didn't, he, he missed it. But, you know, he's not perfect. So there were a couple times where he missed it. But 
overall, I just think it was too much, a little bit overwhelming for that O-line. And you expect a bad game. And these are two rookie tackles, and they've had a, they've held up extraordinarily well up to this point. They're going to have a bad game from time to time. You can't expect you can't expect anything else. Uh, these guys aren't going to be perfect. And so I think this is a learning experience. You take the lumps when you're when you're riding with rookies. Take the lumps and then you roll with them. Simple as that. But Gino, you know, like I said, it wasn't as good of a game for for him. Uh, it was a little bit more of a normal game for Gino, uh, or what you would may expect. It wasn't a bad game. He did not play poorly, but I did think he took a couple of unnecessary sacks. I think he had on the ball a little bit too long. Some of his throws were more risky than, than they normally are. I could tell he was trying to force some things, trying to make some things happen. Um, he just didn't look as accurate and he didn't look as confident. Like I said, not poor, but he did look closer to a game manager, more like the Geno that people would have expected, um, or at least the, the Geno I expected because I, I thought he would play more like this. Like I said, he did take four sacks. Uh, he only had a QBR of 40, uh, a passer rating of 82.3. Uh, he did not have any touchdowns, but he also didn't have any interceptions. And he threw for 197 yards. So, like I said, he wasn't a net negative. Um, but he wasn't exactly a net positive. But sometimes he, he was, and he found some ways to, to make impacts on the team. Sometimes he ran, which was good to see from him. But, you know, just not his strongest game. He rushed for about 48 yards on six attempts. So, he did what he had to do. And you love to see that. And he took accountability for it. In his press conference, he said he could have played better. And I'm curious to see, you know, if this is his floor or if the floor goes lower. You know, you never know. I never really thought Gino would be able to keep up the pace he was at. It was, frankly, unrealistic. So we'll just see. I'm curious to see how he'll respond. I'm not really concerned. I do think they need to do a better job in terms of the red zone. But I, I'm, I'm going to chalk to that game up to more circumstantial situations more than uh, me being really concerned about the offense so so anyway those are pretty much my takeaways from the game the real takeaway is just the improvements on defense and then it, being excited about them being able to build up to something i don't have any real takeaways on offense i was really excited to see ken walker um ken walker did do well i'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that he had 97 yards uh, he led the league, I think, with 12 forced tackles in that game. He's had 22 in his time, in his, you know, short six-week span, and he didn't even play a couple of those weeks. So it's just really impressive. He leads the league in that area. He's just got a real, his ability to cut back and just kind of be slippery. He doesn't do anything obvious. He just has a natural feel and knack, instinct for uh, making people miss. So... He's getting off to a great start. This rookie class is just absolutely incredible. You got six rookie starters, essentially, and they're all providing valuable, meaningful contribution. Every week, you can kind of see their growth, their progress, and this is just such a strong nucleus on this team, which leads me into my final point of the episode, and that is the Russell Wilson situation. So... Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. I just talked about this incredible nucleus of rookies, how spot on that 2022 draft class was from John and Pete. 
how much they were able to create immediate impact and really looks like they put them on the right track to sort of fast track this sort of quote unquote retool. But we always knew it was a rebuild, but they really are making it a retool. So on top of this nucleus of Ken Walker III and Tariq Woolen, uh, Boye Mafe and Kobe Bryant and Abe, Luke, Abe Lucas and Charles Cross and everything that they're providing on top of the fact that they actually have a rookie uh, edge player, Tariq, Tariq Smith, who's on IR. <laughs> and uh, if we could ever see him, that'd be even more amazing. So you got this incredible class of rookies contributing and now, on top of that, they're tied for first in the division right now, so still being competitive at 3-3. Three and three. And because the Broncos are playing so bad, the Broncos are the league's worst, worst offense, and they are just losing game after game after game. So much drama going on over in Bronco country. And it's impacting the Seahawks in a positive way. It's one, it's making Pete Pete look like he was right. I'm seeing a lot of things from Russell that we saw here in Seattle in terms of some of the frustrations that I know I had with him. But you're seeing them on a much more exposed scale. And of course, it's even more embarrassing because these are all primetime games. And that right now the Broncos are two and four. And they have a tough schedule coming up. They've got two winnable games against the Jets and Jags. After that, it's some tough sledding. They gotta play the Chiefs, they gotta play the Rams. I mean, there are not a lot of easy games that those guys have coming. And this was a time for them to be stacking up wins because at the end of the season, it's not gonna be good. Russell Wilson is playing through injuries. They say he's got an injured lap. Lat. I believe it is like a, a, a shoulder with a shoulder injury similar that uh, Dak Prescott had, and he you know, took a took a month, maybe two months off from training camp in the off season, just because they say it's one of those things that you just need to rest. But well, Russ is not resting. He played last week or this past Monday, and it didn't look good. They also say that he tore his hamstring or messed his hamstring up. So now he's supposed to be playing through a hamstring injury injury on top of the lat injury. It's just, it's a lot. I mean, at some point, they're either going to have to sit Russell and just let him heal. Or they're going to keep playing him. I mean, either way, it's not a good scenario. And that pick right now, according to NFL.com, they have the Seahawks slated as having a number five pick. Not because the Seahawks are so bad, but because the Broncos are so bad. So right now, they've got the number five pick and the number 13 pick. How, Candace, how is that related to what you were just talking about? It's related because I was just talking about the strong, strong nucleus that this team has already put together. Now they're looking at having, potentially, I mean, things will change, right? This is, this is we're going into week seven, so take it with a grain of salt, but... It's looking like they got a top five pick, top 13 pick. I mean, maybe the Broncos pick drops down to maybe number seven, eight. Hey, that's still great. Number eight, and if the, if the Seahawks maybe stay top 15, that is incredible. It's an incredible draft, incredible opportunity to continue to build. And, and really, if you can get some key pieces around this team, around this the, the nucleus of what already exists, 
this is the best case scenario. And this is why I was never team tank. I'm I'm never team tank because you what what the best case scenario for this team is to take the talent that's already on it, the talent that's under contract for four years on a cheap rookie deal, and see them blossom and see them contribute to winning and see them make winning plays and see them grow and contribute to at least a competitive slash winning culture. That's the best case scenario because you already know what you have there. And then wherever that leads them in terms of the schedule in the draft, add talent on top of that. You don't want to cross out what you already have in hopes of getting something shiny and new. And that's pretty much what the tank mindset comes in. It's, it's throw away what we already have. I don't really want these guys to be competitive or be able to contribute to winning who are already on my roster because I really want this guy who can really change my franchise and future. And nobody knows that. Nobody knows that. You have the number overall, number one overall pick and it not guarantee that that guy helps change your franchise or contributes to in a big way to get in the Super Bowl. So this is the best case scenario. The Seahawks still being competitive. You seeing the progress. You seeing them winning. Are they? Do I really want them to go undefeated? No. I mean they they do need to have some good draft position, but you just want them to be competitive. They're looking really good for that seven eight win season that I thought they were going to be able to have at the beginning of the season. It projects well, and I think that's the perfect sweet spot for this team. Hopefully. The Broncos are worse than that, and you end up getting another high pick. So it's looking excellent. It's looking amazing for the Seahawks right now. Can't be in better position than what they're looking at. Pete Carroll looks vindicated. And while I do, I mean, part of me feels bad for Russ, but it's hard to just because of how everything went down. I hope everything is okay with him and his mental health. And that's about it. Because I really need them to lose. So so this, so this these picks can really help build the foundation of what the Seahawks are hoping can be a decade of dominance. You know, that's really what they're looking at. They can really hit on these next draft picks. So, so anyway, a great, great week for the Seahawks thus far. Looking good on every, every angle, present and the future. So the next game up is a game against the team that just beat the Broncos, uh, barely, in Monday Night Football. Uh, the L.A. Chargers, they'll be coming off of a short week, which helps us. They played overtime, so they're even more tired. That helps us, too. That helps the team. I, it doesn't mean that it's a guaranteed win by any means, but I think that I think the team learned a lot from watching the Monday Night Football game, and I think that this is a real chance. It's a real chance for them to put together a solid defensive performance and a solid offense performance to really start becoming a more complete team on both offense and defense. So we'll be here to break that down for you here soon. In the meantime, make sure to follow me on Twitter at CandaceH901. That's CandaceH901. And be sure to follow the show at Sports Ethos. Be sure to leave us a like, a follow, share, comment if you listen on YouTube. In the meantime, that's all I got. I'm out, folks. And as always, go Hawks.